And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic. Phil's here from The Athletic. And us from the Square Ball, Dan and Michael here. Hello. Phil, back from your holidays last week to uh, to catch up on things. Did you, did you listen to what Hayden had to say? Um, I haven't had a chance to go through Hayden's podcast, but I'm going to sit tomorrow morning and have a listen. Always very, very good. Very informative. That was last week's show. Can definitely invite you to uh, to go back and listen. Sh- to shall that. he shall he replace me full time? I think it should. Uh, the Hayden Evans the Hayden show. Evans show. Yeah, yeah. Let's get in touch with the Athletic and um, and see if they fancy it. In the meantime, if you do want to read what Phil's writing at the Athletic, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod, you can get these podcasts ad free as well as reading. Everything Phil writes about Leeds, match day discussions before and after the game with the man himself. Do you enjoy those, Phil? Uh, immensely, yes. Embracing the doom. I've started, I've started taking pan pipes to them. Um, <laughs> sit around and sing Kumbaya, which I think is what we should do for the next hour here. Might help. Yeah, we were chatting about this one, weren't we? And just like, where do we want to take this discussion? And it's kind of a, all right, the dust has settled now off the back of the, the Liverpool game, which compounded the misery of the Palace game. 5-1, 6-1. Not been a fun week, has it? No, you have this with seasons, particularly seasons that go wrong or seasons that end with you competing for something more positive than the EFL, which is that to start with and in the early games, which are quite benign because you're so far from the end of it and the table hasn't taken any shape, you think far more about longer term growth of the team, development of the team, who's best in which position, who needs to be given time. And then once you get to the middle of April and it's like this, it's just purely about how are they going to grind from here to the end of the season and make sure that they don't get sucked into the bottom three. It's been a really, really damaging fortnight, I think, for a couple of reasons. Partly because of the results and the way they've occurred, the bottom falling out of the second half against Crystal Palace and also just getting completely schooled by Liverpool. There's a big difference between losing to Liverpool, who are still a good team, and when they play like that, a massive handful. And I think there was a general feeling that Midway through the second half, it was kind of being phoned in a bit. You know, there wasn't a right lot of fight coming. There wasn't a right lot of resistance. And you did rather fear that it was going to get to five or six, which it did. It's not great to be losing games at this time of the season anyway, but losing them like that is damaging. And two games running now, Gracia has found it difficult afterwards to explain properly what's gone on. He said, I don't have an explanation for this. And I'm off up to see him um, in a couple of hours' time um, for the press conference before Fulham. And you would like to think that there will be some explanation or, or I guess some picture painted of what they're going to do and what it is that they that they need to fix. And it's kind of baffling, isn't it? Because we've gone from two weeks ago, and we said a few times, maybe it was our fault, talking about normality, but two weeks ago feeling as if there was organisation returning and that the pragmatism was good, doing good things for Leeds, that they were looking tighter at the back, that they, there was more adaptability, I suppose, in the tactics and the, the strategy being used to actually talking about probably the two worst defeats of the season or the two the two heaviest and the two games in which Leeds have looked most porous and most likely to take an absolute beating. Can we put it down to the absence of Max Verber because that's what's been missing for the last couple of games? Well, he's been missing. I don't think Tyler Adams missing is helping either. We wrote after 
Adam's injury uh, when he, he did his hamstring about the fact that that from here on in it was going to have to be realistically McKenney and Mark Rocker as the pairing in the middle as the, the axis behind whatever was in front of them and in, in front of the back four. There are other options. Obviously, there's Adam Forshaw who came off the bench late on against Liverpool, but you know Forshaw has hardly kicked a ball since the turn of the year. Big ask to be saying to him, right? You're gonna, you know, you're gonna carry the can now to the end of the season. There are younger players, JB in particular, Archie Gray beyond him as well. But realistically, in the circumstances when you need players to put their hands up, you are looking to people like Rocker and McKenney, players of their age, players with their background, their their experience to deliver. But if if you go back to the midfields that. Uh, that Gracia was picking initially and also Jesse Marsh but I think because this is on Gracia's watch you'd talk more about him he was rotating players in that area but Adams was always there he was always picking Adams so he was mixing it up slightly but it was Adams and McKinney it was Adams and Rocket apart from the point at which um, Adams wasn't fit to play and I think that tells you that he was somebody he would absolutely have wanted in there and he's definitely somebody who they need at the moment but we're almost up to the end of April now I think at the time when Adams did his hamstring, it seemed very unlikely that he'd play again before the end of the season. I'll ask Grassi about that later, but um, I would imagine the chances aren't particularly high as it stands. And as for Verba, yeah, I think if he's fit, he was on the bench on Monday, but if he's fit, he's surely got to play at Fulham. He has made a difference. I think it's been quite obvious, not just in the way he's played, that, that's been important, but also he looks like a bit of a talker. And I wouldn't say, looking across this team from front to back, you see a lot of talkers in the lineup. There was nobody really in that game, in either game, when it started to go off the rails. Grabbing it by the scruff of the balls, was there? No, scruff the balls. Yes. That's, a, that's a phrase. i <laughs> steal that before the, before the season's done. No, not particularly. Um, I guess it's the keep calm and pass to Snodgrass thing, where in these circumstances, really good teams don't tend to rely on individual players you know, to a huge extent, I suppose the anomaly with that is the, the ridiculous number of goals scored by Haaland over at Manchester City. But it's not as if in City's season, Grealish hasn't been excellent and others haven't played particularly well. You know, and, and it's a daft comparison really because of the, the disparity in wealth. But it tends to be with clubs who are struggling or teams who look like they might go down that the importance of individuals rises and, and that the weight placed on people who can just produce something from nothing, you know, Rafinha, been a good example even Gelhart last season you know that ability to come off the bench win a penalty score at the death against Norwich that's sometimes the difference between going down and, and staying up and there wasn't the sight of much of that on Monday or against Palace really I, I didn't think it's not to say that it isn't definitely there but I, again the intention this season go back to Radrazani's interview that he did with us um, back in late July early August before the season started the intention was for this, obviously, not to be another relegation fight. And the squad they've built, the, the team that, that is put together at the moment, it doesn't look tailor-made for this sort of scrap, does it? And that's not to say they won't get out of it, because I think there are other teams at the bottom who are, who are not tailor-made for this in any way either. But it's going to be tight. What have you made of Pascal Strauch across these games? Because I've, I've had high hopes from him in the past, because he looks on the ball, he looks like quite a classy footballer. But as a centre-back, he just seems like he's... He's quite passive. In some ways, he gets away with it. He doesn't make big mistakes in the way that someone like Liam Cooper does. But it feels like he, it feels like he doesn't do enough defending, if that makes sense. The problem that I see with Stroik, and it might just be that when push comes to shove, it turns out that he's not Premier League quality or, or you know, he needs to be playing elsewhere or, or at a lower level. Although I, I have always felt 
over the years that there's a good player there and, and potentially good centre-back. But how much has he actually played at centre-back? How much has he actually had a run on the left side of, of the pairing as opposed to being used at left-back, which you can bluff all you like about you know that being a, a position he can cope with, but he doesn't have the pace that you look for in a, a full-back these days. And, and granted, you know, take Arsenal's team, you've got Ben White at right-back, so it's not about end-to-end wing-backs necessarily. But Stroik is... You know, his physique, his height, everything else. I just don't see that player in him at all. But that seems to be where most of his appearances have come. And getting bombed in at centre-back when the season's going wrong and when you're massively under pressure is unlikely to to show the best of you. I, in a similar sort of vein, I, I wrote about Jorginho Ruta after Monday night. Again, off the bench, 25 minutes towards the end of a match that was already lost. And going through his recent appearances, you know, it has been... On as a substitute when Liverpool are 4-1 up, on as a substitute when Palace are 5-1 up, on as a substitute when Arsenal are 3-1 up and those games have completely gone. What chance in those circumstances of really making a, a serious impact? And I'm not saying that Ruter has looked great. I'm not saying that he's looked like a £30 million signing. But I don't think we're in a position where we can really judge, are we? Because he's hardly been hardly been involved. And I guess the bigger picture there is that he is a good footballer and you know that because there are a lot of clubs across Europe who like him and a lot of recruitment departments who thought very highly of him and you know what we're kind of tempted to invest in the way that Leeds did so clearly has talent and is clearly a good prospect I suppose you form part of the judgement by the fact he's not playing because we, it's not like he's it's not like he's trying to force people in great form out of the side we, we don't look very good going forward at all and it feels like Bamford and Rodrigo and neither Neither of them are particularly suited to the roles they've been asked to play. Yeah, it's a totally fair point. So I think the conclusion that draws you to is that in a position like Leeds are in, where you're in danger of going down, you cannot afford to have a record signing who is making so such a little, small impression and playing so little. I mean, I went through the numbers and it's 242 minutes so far, which bearing in mind, you know, he's been here for three months, is little over two full matches. He scored no goals. He scored no assists. He's had no shots on target. He hasn't really been, hasn't really been part of the plans. If truth be told, I know he's in the squad. I know he's on the bench, but he, but he isn't appearing. And I just don't think the Premier League gives you the luxury of having a record signing who is a bit of a passenger and slightly anonymous. And and again, I'm not sure this is really Ruta's fault, but they have got themselves into this situation, Leeds, where as somebody put it on Twitter, and I thought this was this was kind of the perfect way to word it. You're planning for a future which the Premier League can easily deny you because the Premier League can find you out at, at any time. So it's not a case of Ruta necessarily being a bad signing per se. And it's not the case that in four or five years' time, you might not look back and say, actually, that was a really good deal and, and has turned out to be a really good deal. But you do have to have some short-termism if you're in a position in the Premier League that requires you to to look at it in that way. It's fine if you're Brighton or Brentford, then it can all be kind of long-term vision and long-term ideas although I don't think you know if we're honest either of those clubs are purely in long-term mode you know they, they do think about the here and now too but I think it's a bit symptomatic of the way it's gone over the past two years that you've got a player there who has cost leads more than any player before who is struggling to get on the pitch at a time when there's any chance of him making an impression. Symptomatic is an interesting word there Phil because I have just written down on my piece of paper here my notepad he's a symptom of the problem rather than the problem itself. Yes, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I think so. I will say, I will say for the pedants, he did have a shot on target against Fulham in the FA Cup. 
Ah, sorry, I was talking about the Premier League, but you are absolutely someone right. Will, yes. will point that uh, to be fair to him as well, he looked like he was starting to just get a little foothold in that game. And obviously he shone quite well against Accrington, but admittedly it's against Accrington. But that Fulham game, you thought, ah, okay, he's just now, he's got that header, you know, he got the goal that was ruled out as well for offside, didn't he? And you, you thought, you can see the player that's in there, but we've just, we've not seen anything uh, of him there since. There were flashes against yeah. Southampton as well, I thought, when he came on. But over three months, they start to look like really isolated, um, isolated moments. And whether that's down to him or whether it's down to the team around him and... I mean, we're going to talk about goalkeepers in um, in part two. And I guess the, the, the debate about cause is never more relevant than when it comes to a goalkeeper. Is a goalkeeper struggling because the team is struggling? Is the team struggling because a goalkeeper is struggling? Similar sort of thing with Ruta, you know, how to work out why it is that, that it's not happening for him. But I don't think anybody can pretend that in Leeds circumstances, you can have a £30 million player come in in January when the season is far from secure and the results aren't in control. And play as little as he has it reminds me in some ways of uh, when Bournemouth signed Solanke from um, from Liverpool for, they, I think they paid about 20 million for him and it took him absolutely ages to score a goal and they were relegated now long term actually he's quite a handy player for him now and he's, he's he has got goals in the championship he's done alright this year and he's still in his mid-20s so you can see long term maybe that wasn't a bad signing but for a year everyone went what have we done here I mean this like, is the thing about signing 20 year old kids mm. Isn't it? The way well, you're saying about long term. Brewster at Sheffield United, another really good example. The thing is, I, I understand why Leeds are in the recruitment bracket that they are and, and why they operate to a large degree in the way that they do because your you prime signings, your ready-made signings are really expensive and in a lot of cases are too expensive for Leeds to, to buy. Not just the transfer fees, but in many cases it's the wages more than anything that, that are the problem. So it's almost unavoidable that you have to go for, I guess, slightly raw products or unfinished products you know not not the finished article time and time again but you need to have enough round about them to lean on and enough round about them to take the weight of the pressure that means that if you've got a young player in the squad who isn't shining or isn't playing that much it doesn't really matter I mean again loath to go down the, the Manchester City route of comparison but there's a good reason why it was so softly softly with Phil Foden for Guardiola and the reason was firstly he didn't feel up until you know a certain point that Foden was ready to just be let loose constantly. But the other thing was that there was enough roundabout where that didn't need to happen with Foden. And, and I know Foden was you know he's come through City, so it's slightly different circumstances to to what's um, what's happened with Ruta and Ruta's career path. But it, it's the same thing. The pressure at City was was on was on the other people. So Foden was able to dip in and out for games here and there to develop, to grow, to to get better, without it being a case of right, well, you absolutely need to deliver today, otherwise we're in trouble. You know, with, with Rooted, I think we're still still to work out exactly what he is. Gracia spoke about after he started him at Chelsea, which is his only Premier League start so far, said he played up front alone because I didn't have Rodrigo and I didn't have Bamford. You know, in ideal circumstances, you would play Rooted as part of a two up front. I think the stats show that Rooted has the potential to be pretty good out wide as well, good at take-ons and one-on-ones and, and all of that. But really trying to to find his feet. It's harsh really because this is not about him. You know, this is not down to, to Ruta. But I think in the the discussion about why it hasn't worked out for Leeds this season, you'd have to say that signing a player for that amount of money in January only to deliver this amount of impact is one of them. Have you seen the report, speaking of like buying young players and potential, um, Manuel Ugarte, the guy uh, at Sporting, 22 years old, defensive midfielder, some, uh, some noise in the Portuguese press 
this week that he might be uh, a target for the summer. Yeah, I saw him linked. I mean, the summer is very difficult to speak about at the moment and that applies as much as anything to the takeover because so much is going to be dictated by where Leeds finish if they stay up, if they go down and then the changes that are going to come. I mean, I've, I've said before that I, I wouldn't really anticipate with 49ers Enterprise a massive clear out at executive level the moment they arrive. You know, it's always felt as if there will be some transition with people like Angus Kinnear, Victor Otter. I mean, clearly Radrizani will go at the point where um, the shares are, are transferred. So you would assume that if Otter is still in charge of the transfer planning as he has been for several years now, that you know that that he would he would have his hand on that, and and that does sound like the sort of target that he tends to go for. There's going to be a lot of people who hear that and don't, who don't like it. No, I, well, absolutely. But then, what else would the club expect? You know, after two difficult seasons, what would they expect apart from doubt and scepticism and, and frustration about how it's gone? And there will need to be from here forward. There will need to be some demonstration of the ability to get it right, and that doesn't even just apply to players. That applies to head coaches as well. You know, when the when the time for the decision comes, if they stay up and if they go down, clearly the consequences will be major in terms of players leaving and the, the changes that have to happen. If they stay up, do they go for Gracia? Do they go for somebody else? Do 49ers Enterprises leave that to Alter and the recruitment department to um, to narrow down the shortlist? Do 49ers Enterprises lead it? People will want to see fresh blood and they will want to see new ideas. And I don't think the past fortnight does anything other than I guess, consolidate your thinking about the fact that the club needs a reset and it does need some new direction. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you mentioned there in part one, Phil, let's do goalkeepers now. Uh, we didn't mention Ilan Melier, who has shipped an awful lot of goals. Now, the most in the Premier League, I think it was Johnny Cooper, our, our statty friend, who pointed out that Leeds have now conceded 60 goals in the last two seasons, which is not good. It's it's a bad record. This falls into the category of exactly what we're saying about Rutter, which is that you've got to be careful that you don't paint this as Melier's fault. You know, if Melier wasn't in goal, Leeds would be fine. I don't think anybody watching Leeds would draw that conclusion at all. But the stat that jumped out after Monday night was that between Palace's first goal and Liverpool's sixth, there'd been 11 shots on target and Melier had conceded all of them. It's really nuanced this because, as I said in part one, it's a case of cause, isn't it? Is Melier suffering because there's a mess in front of him or a lead suffering because the keeper's not doing behind him what, what he needs to, to be doing? I guess some basic numbers, first of all, and this, this leads on from what Johnny was saying, you know, the fact that they, they have the worst defensive record this season. Leeds in the Premier League have been, with a few periods that have been exceptions, dreadful defensively, to the extent that if I asked you after 104 games in the Premier League, and that's what Melier's played from the start of the 2021 season onwards to now, 
How many goals has he conceded? 104 games. 140. 191. That's goals. a lot, isn't it? It's a lot of goals, it is. And so when you look through who else has played in that period, next behind him, Jordan Pickford, who has 96 appearances over those three seasons, so eight fewer than Melier, and has conceded 143, so almost 50 fewer. And you know, it, it breaks down further and further and further and further. You've got, for example, um, Emiliano Martinez, um, 103 games, so one fewer than Melier, 127 goals. You know, almost the difference of, of 70 there. And it makes you realise that nobody in this league gets peppered like a lead, or no goalkeeper in this league gets peppered like a Leeds United goalkeeper. And there's no way that can be Melier's fault alone. You know, that is that is clearly the product of a team who have not been good enough defensively really at, at any stage. But what happened in the first season um, under Bielsa where they did concede 54 goals, which is reasonably high tally without being, you know, out of order. They scored a lot, you know, and were able to, um, were able to offset it by by being a very good attacking side. But that hasn't really been the case in the last two seasons. But what is quite noticeable about Melier is something that's called, and I, I, do you mind if I get into, um, or do you mind if I pretend that I know about all this statistical data that I'm going to speak Yeah, this is it. I'm just um, rapidly scrambling to um, Google Drive. So I credit our data guys for this because they know about this stuff. But there is a metric people know of expected goals. There is also a metric no, it goes by the name of expected goals on target, XGOT, which sounds really, really technical. Expected and Game of Thrones. Yes, absolutely. would be even better. And actually, it's a great way of describing the Premier League. Yeah, like in August, what is going to happen? Who is going to take over Winterfell? So, expected goals on target analyzes the likelihood of a shot once it's been hit of going in. As in, when a shot is hit at a goalkeeper and it's on target, should the goalkeeper save it? should the goalkeeper not. Now, none of this stuff is scientifically perfect and there's obviously wriggle room roundabout. But what it helps to do is it helps to create data for the number of goals a club realistically should have conceded or a goalkeeper should have conceded versus the number of goals that they actually have conceded. And in Melier's case, the worst in the division is um, Bazunu at um, Southampton. So he should have conceded 34 goals this season. He's actually conceded 49. So there's a difference of almost 15 with Melier, he should have conceded 48 or thereabouts. He's actually conceded 59. And actually, I think it's it's gone up to City. There's obviously a, a slight anomaly there because that should be on 60. But what it's showing you is that there's a big difference between what he should have conceded and what he actually has conceded. And if you go up to the other end of the table, you have somebody like Alisson at Liverpool who should have conceded 46, but has actually conceded 34. So a positive difference of 12. So the suggestion there is that in the case of Allison, he is digging Liverpool out when they need him to dig them out, and actually is doing quite a big favour to a defence who whose stats would look considerably worse and are not particularly helping him. You know, he is doing positive things for them. With Melier, it paints the impression of a side who are defensively weak, but at the same time as being defensively weak, don't have a goalkeeper behind them who is likely to dig them out of trouble regularly. I was going to say, do you know with those? With the, the way they judge this, is it purely from position on the pitch and direction of ball and stuff? Because I, I know, I feel like a lot of the goals we've conceded this year, particularly in the early part, with a classic ball to the back post, which leaves the goalkeeper sprinting across his own goal, which probably leaves him not well set to is that take they, a shot. Is that what they call game state? Yes, let's say yes. Or I've not. <laughs> <laughs> what, what they do with this, and if you have it, we've actually written at length about this Friday morning, so you'll find a lot of graphics on there which, which will help to, to process this a bit more. And as I say, it's not 
you know, this is kind of like numbers and science. So it it takes out slightly the um, some of the the tangibles or the emotion of games and and that that sort of stuff. But what they do to work this out is they assess the quality of the shot. So you know, on the basis that a shot close to the post is far more likely to go in than a shot down the middle of the goal because the fact is that goalkeepers tend to be in the middle of the goal. Now, obviously, this depends again on where the shot's coming from and everything else. So, for example, on Monday, one of the goals that Mele, I saw Mele getting criticised for was Salah's in the first half, the, the goal for 2-0 because it beat him at the near post. And convention has it that goalkeepers shouldn't really get beaten at the near post. Although, if you defer to Kasper Schmeichel's view on this he says that that was just an idea that somebody invented ages ago that has become prevalent in football you shouldn't get beaten at your near post but actually it's it's not true you know it's just you, you just get beaten where you get beaten as a goalkeeper so using the shots that are high quality versus the shots that are low quality and analysing really in, in the eyes of the, the data world what likelihood there is what probability there is of these shots beating Meli or Bazunu or Alisson or anybody else you can work out and establish, is a keeper saving more efforts than he should be or is a keeper letting in more efforts than he should be? It's numbers, isn't it? It's like expected goals. There'll be a lot of people listening to this saying, this is total bollocks. Um, Well, I'm sat here thinking, I I, I mean, uh, similar thoughts, but I'm thinking it more along the lines of, I don't trust it because I don't know enough about how the data is gathered and is what Michael is saying there. Yeah, that's what what I'm thinking, just because if it's it's a shot that's close to the goalkeeper, but the goalkeeper has had to run across his line to get to it in the first yeah. place. Is he scrambling? So if it goes in the middle of the goal, is that then ranked as a shot that he should save? Or It tries it tries to factor in all of this stuff. It's a metric, isn't it? It's the same as expected goals. So, you know, you have some people who live and die by expected goals and will look at a game and say, right, okay, well, on that basis, such and such should have won it even though they lost it. Sometimes to the naked eye, you feel as if the team who lost it deserved to lose it because you saw the game and you know you, you, you could feel the way that the pressure was going, you could feel the dominance. Expected goals doesn't explain everything and, and this doesn't either. But it is widely used and, and it is used as a way to assess which keepers are making a big difference to the team, which keepers aren't. But I think the point about the, the debate with Melier is that that doesn't paint a picture of Leeds as a good team who have been let down by him behind them because Leeds clearly aren't a good team defensively you know and haven't been for several seasons you or several seasons isn't fair but for two seasons and also with Millie 191 concessions and 104 goals it's got he's a young keeper and it's got to chip away at your performance and your you know your, your confidence levels out of interest Phil who are the top four on that top four um, according to these stats Alisson um, at Liverpool who is pretty much way out ahead of everybody else. Leno at Fulham, Kepa at Chelsea, Rea at Brentford. There are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 keepers who finish. This is the 22 keepers in the division who've played more than 900 minutes. So like a decent sample of keepers who've actually played enough for you to be sure about it. But 11 who are in the blue, um, which is positive numbers all the way down to Fabianski. And then another 11 who are in the red, starting with Sa at Wolves all the way down to Bazunu in 22nd place and Melly in 21st. So keepers who are playing for teams near the bottom and near the bottom and generally keepers for teams that are near the top and near the top. Except at 19th you've got Edison who according to the data should have conceded 23, has conceded 27. I think you might have hit upon a thing there uh, in what you said a minute or two ago, Phil, about his youthfulness. He's a young keeper and you don't need to dive into metrics like that whether you understand them or not. 
when you just consider that he's a he's a young man and he doesn't have that much experience in the game and you would expect an older head to be able to organize a defense based on experience in in the game wouldn't you and and also is there is there even a question of life experience as well it, it's not easy as a 22 year old or whatever Melier is now to order around people who are older than him in, in front of him even if there's, that is the game there's a natural you know you have to kind of earn that respect don't you there's partly that there's also the the sense that conceding as many goals as as he has and as Leeds have can't help you to grow as a keeper particularly it can't help you to develop this doesn't feel the last two seasons I think it's probably fair to say have not felt like a great environment for Melier to develop him because they have been under so much pressure and they have taken some heavy beatings and they have lost a, a lot of games it might well be that further down the line it's character building for him but you're right not always easy to, to order people around I think the feeling coming away from the game on Monday um, against Liverpool was that something or certain things are going to have to change with this team for Fulham. It doesn't seem feasible to me that Gracia can just throw the same lineup into the Fulham game. There'll surely have to be some thought given to it. And I think it's totally legitimate that there is a discussion about would a change of goalkeeper make any any sense in that. I spoke to a goalkeeping expert, a guy called Matt Podrowski, who played professionally, and I was asking him to look at the goals on Monday and to say, do you think in the circumstances or, or given the attacks... Millie could have done considerably better or, or done anything different. And he said, you know, there were split second judgments, which if you watch them back, you might have done something, it might have taken an alternative route, might have taken a, an alternative decision. But he said that in all the all the situations, he could see why Millie was doing what he was doing. And he didn't think that Millie behind Leeds was any more of a problem than what was going on in front of him. And I think the best example of that is probably Jota's goal um, for 3-1, which is... Strike misses a tackle, Thorpe misses a tackle, Curtis Jones curls a ball in behind Christensen, who isn't tight to Jota. Melier decides to come, can't get close enough, Jota scores. It's a combination of errors, isn't it? And I'm I'm not convinced, even though I don't think Melier's playing especially well, I don't think he's had a particularly great season, I'm not particularly convinced that um, taking him out of the equation will make a massive difference, but I might be wrong. Has the goalkeeper's role, I mean, it has changed, hasn't it? Hugely, I'm asking a rhetorical question there. Oh, massively. Because yeah. you, you, you always fall back on your, your own frames of reference, don't you? And I look back to Nigel Martin, who, who is consistently voted Leeds United's greatest ever goalkeeper. Yeah. I mean, we spoke to him, didn't we, for one of our shows? And he was and saying, is, like, isn't he? I mean, there's no, oh, with, no oh, yeah. dispute about that. He was no. absolutely, he was unreal. For anybody who didn't see him, what a goalkeeper. Yeah. Uh, definitely the best of, of my lifetime. But he, he even said, didn't he, that the game now, what they ask of keepers now compared to what he had to do, it's just night and day and it, it's a whole other skill set that Melier is asked to engage in versus what Martin had to do 20, 25 years ago. Well, I remember hearing Matt Dawson, the rugby player, talking on Five Live during the Six Nations a couple of years ago and he was saying that the position of scrum half has changed so much in that sport that he doesn't think now he would have won a single cap for England if he was playing now because his game and what he did and his idea of playing in that position would just not have suited it at all, you know, and no coach would have wanted him to be doing what he was doing. And he did say that quite openly. I don't think I would have been capped once. I don't honestly believe that with Martin, perhaps the player as Martin was back then would struggle with the game today because of what's asked of you. But you have to be fair and say that if Martin was growing up today, then he'd have been coached in a different way, you know, and he'd, he'd have been taught the the skills and, and the different ideas that the goalkeepers are taught these days. And yeah, no, but without a doubt, watching Melier play now and, and particularly since Bielsa's come in watching the way that goalkeepers have to work it's totally different to goalkeepers as we knew them 
you know, through the post-Premier League years, you know, Neil Sullivan, Casper um, Schmeichel, others like that. It wasn't played in this way. They weren't asked to do what they were doing. And I mean, again, to go back to the, the third goal um, that Leeds conceded on Monday, you can see the really high line that they've got, Leeds. Really, really high line. But because they don't make either of those tackles and because Christensen loses Jota and then loses out on pace to him, suddenly they're, they're badly, badly exposed. And that probably happens now in a way that perhaps it didn't happen so much in, in a previous era because of the way teams try to play. I mean, back in Martin's era, it was a case of you made the saves, you organised the defence, you caught the corners, occasionally punched it, and then you booted it upfield. Your goalkeeper now is your 11th outfield player. Well, I, I remember, the way, the way I remember it, goalkeepers back in the day was that everything was about saves wasn't it absolutely if you made a lot of saves and you made a lot of great saves everybody thought you were a great keeper but these days people do analyse more and more whether Edison is trying to play as a centre back when City are on the ball and you know how how goalkeepers are distributing with their feet how good their range is how good their accuracy is Uh, it seems to be less and less about shot stopping although it becomes about shot stopping when you're in this sort of position and under this type of pressure and it definitely becomes about shot stopping as well when you have stats like that saying it's 11 shots on goal it's 11 goals you know it it doesn't look great but I think again to use that word symptomatic what's going on with Melier is probably symptomatic of what's going on with the team which is that it's just not working and it hasn't really worked right the way through the season Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. To Craven Cottage then and uh, Leeds United back in action. Do you know what, Phil? I hated the start this week. I'm looking forward to it again now. Are you? Yeah. Are you? I, I'm so sadly predictable in my yeah, cycle. Yeah, your WhatsApps, the tone of them has changed as the week's gone on from kill everyone to... I can see us doing it at, um, at Fulham. Yeah. I just think this this team, whilst it's had a terrible, terrible week that could absolutely destroy its confidence and may well have done, it's still not as bad as we've seen over the last couple of games. It has something in it and I'm not saying... This is not the we've got one in us. I don't consider Fulham to be a we've got one in us game. I just think you can't be that consistently bad in every game. There has to be a reaction at some point to what's gone on. And there is more ability in that squad than they would lead you to believe over the last couple of games. And I I just think it's time for them to show themselves now. Yeah, so on that basis, it's probably going to tell us quite a lot this game, isn't it? Do they turn up and play well? Do they turn up and play poorly? I think one way or the other, people will draw pretty clear conclusions from that the reason I guess that you should be reasonably confident about going to Fulham is that Fulham have had a really good season and are safe and everything else and, and will stay up although the, the form has definitely tailed off recently and they are minus Mitrovic who's who's serving this long ban but I sort of feel like if 
truth be told about Fulham, they're probably closer to this clutch teams at the bottom of the table than they are to the, the clutch teams that they were mixing with for so long. I think that they probably fall more into, into the bracket at the lower end. So by no means an, an unbeatable side, but have been good this season and, and deserve to, to stay in the league. So it is eminently possible that Leeds go there and play well and have enough and win. And they did play well at Fulham in the FA Cup. Didn't deserve to lose that game. One of those weird ones where it did seem like even a chance from a yard out was going to go wide. But I feel like they I feel like they've got to take something from this. And I know that sounds obvious because there's only seven games to go. But a bad day at Fulham will heap the pressure on Leicester at home. You've got to arrest the tailspin, haven't you, basically? Yeah, and probably more so now because it's not as if they've been edged by Palace and then beaten by Liverpool in, in what was a kind of tidy game. They've been smashed in both. And again, we'll speak to um, Grassi about this shortly. But I refuse to believe that that doesn't have some impact on kind of morale and, and confidence. It, it has to do because if if you're in a dressing room saying to yourselves, are we getting out of this? It doesn't look like it, does it? When you ship 11 goals in those two games and, and get beaten in, in the way that they have. So it'll be really interesting performance-wise. It'll be very interesting tactically to see how Gracia handles this as well. And also emotionally how he handles this because this is when, this is when you earn your money, isn't it? When you you're up against it. And I think everybody always finds this out. In no way at the end of this season, if, if Leeds were to go, and even if they don't, in no way are you going to say, well, Grassi's fault. I mean, it just isn't, is it? It's, um, you know, he's he's got to make an impact on these games, but there's a much bigger picture here about things that, that have gone wrong. But everybody who comes in late in a season and comes in with the kind of order to keep us up, you know, give or take, tends to hit this period where suddenly it's all on you and there's a lot of pressure. And, you know, the kind of, the bounce that you come in with thinking, excellent, I'm going to take this on, is suddenly replaced by the strain of realising that you've got a massive job on your hands and that it's it's a long way from being finished. I've been keeping an eye on Twitter this week and do you think, just to suggest some of the changes I've seen, oh, yes, go on. <laughs> I've seen on there, do you think we should play any of these players? Robles, Cooper, Verba, uh, Montero, I saw in someone's starting lineup, mm. the, uh, the Portuguese defender just drive, Greenwood, JB, uh, Marchi Gray should be getting a start. Jorginho Ruta, I saw put forward. I think I saw someone with Sonny Perkins in the team. I don't know if he was even fit well, at the well, moment. Well, that's almost 11. So why don't you just ram them all into a starting lineup and see what happens? Chaos theory. Um, and, and maybe maybe Willie Nonto as well. Nonto, I'm surprised at how little Nonto has been used. I know he's come back from injury. Maybe that is that is what it is. But again, a bit like Verber, it feels like once Nonto is good to go and ready to play, surely he, he has to start. I mean, you were talking in part one, Phil, about players with that special source like Rafinha. I think probably the only one I can truly identify in the Leeds squad that's got that is Willie Nonto. I think there are two at the moment. Um, there's Nonto, and well, I say at the moment, I think there have been two this season. There's Nonto and there's also Rodrigo who has come up with big moments, good finishes and, and, and could yet. But Nonto is probably as close to that kind of wild card, off the cuff, bit of brilliance that you had in Rafinha um, as, as anything else in the Leeds squad. To return to Melier, if it wasn't going to be Melier in goal, and I'm still massively in two minds as to whether or not changing there would make sense. And I think the reason for that is that Robles is the only alternative, isn't he? I don't see any way in which you drop Melier and say, we're going to play Klassen, who hasn't played first team level at all since last season and only played once at first team level last season. Robles has a lot more football behind him was involved, you know, at, at Wigan the season when they were trying to stay up and, and won the FA Cup, but but went down. So that is an option, but again, hasn't played a great deal. Would be coming in somewhat cold. 
But if it's not going to be Melier, it would have to be have to be him, yeah. I don't think he'll drop Melier. I don't think he will no. either. No, I, I don't. I don't think. I he think will. It's, it's. I think it's a moot point. I think he'll leave him in there because he won't want to damage his confidence. Won't want to damage his confidence, and also I think he'll probably be asking himself: Is it actually going to make any tangible difference? You know, shuffling around in that position. Verba, yes, absolutely. Montero, there's just no chance. Montero. <laughs> I mean, is he not playing in the under 18 still? <laughs> well, he is a really good prospect and he's a really good, talented player. But if you have Verba available and you have Cooper available and you have Robin Koch available and you have Strike available, you're picking from them, aren't you? I mean, it's, you're just not going to do a massive about turn at this point. Cooper is really interesting because this debate about Cooper has been going on since the world began, really, or certainly since the world began with him at Leeds. I still don't think, for all, I guess you could say, the limitations in Cooper's game, I still don't think there is anybody with the same level of leadership skills in the squad as Cooper. The one exception possibly from the little I've seen of him or the the short-term time he's been here, the one exception being Verba. But then Robin Koch has probably had, would you say, is it a good season? It's hard to say anybody's had a good season, really, isn't it? Because of the way it's gone. You can't concede 60 goals and think he's, you've had a good season, can you? No, that's that's Although what makes it difficult. he's but looked better. Yeah, he has looked better. And I think removing him from the team would kind of be unjustified, really. I'm not sure what you would base that on. But they do need some guidance, some leadership at the back. And I, I absolutely feel this weekend that the voice of Verba, the voice of Cooper, somebody needs to be in there to try and hold this together and, and to keep it together. And who else? Uh, I guess the... The of the right back problem because obviously Ailing was playing terribly. We then brought in Rasmus Christensen who also played terribly. So, so what on earth do you do there? It's funny because um, Cody Dramme is having a very, very good season at Luton in the way that Charlie Creswell, up until that eye injury, was starting to put together a really good season at Millwall as well. And suddenly you look at, I mean, I've always, you know, always liked Creswell. Dramme was looking in the 21s but hasn't really played enough at first team level at Leeds to, to be sure about that. But He's looked excellent at Luton and you start to think to yourself, maybe actually there are options there going forward that are potentially better than some of, of what they've got. I false would, two, Phil. False two, mm. yeah. In the way that um in the way that Hernandez was a bit of a false seven. Yeah. Um I it would seem odd to me if having gone for Christensen on Monday, he swung back to Ailing, although how would you decide really? I don't know, I wouldn't see either in great form at the moment. Christensen worries me, I have to say. His ability on the ball seems very limited. He reminds me, to go back to the, the Nigel Martin chat, he reminds me of a full, uh, fullback from that era where your job was basically to get it and kick it down the line to a winger and occasionally run after it. Yeah, yeah. He is, he's very 90s in his stylings, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Um, and Ailing strikes me as one of the people that you would look to for a bit of leadership, but I don't think we should romanticise it by saying... I, I mean, I, I love Ailing and I think he's been fantastic, um, but I don't think we should romanticised the past couple of months and say that it's gone especially well from there. I think it's been a it's been a struggle. But this is the nature of out of form teams, isn't it? And the nature of, of threatened teams that you don't tend to have form going on or good form going on in, in every position. And in the end, Gracia I think Gracia has done good things up until this last fortnight. I like some of what he's done with the team. I did like what was going on in, in the early run of games. But you are inheriting a team who right the way from the off, with the exception of August, really, have been toiling um, and have looked like they're getting sucked into a relegation fight. And it's almost impossible in those circumstances to click your fingers and make a, a total overnight difference. I, I guess what I mean is that it's hard to imagine that Gracia was going to come in and there wouldn't be bumps in the road. 
last couple of weeks remind me of the film, you know, film Gremlins. It's like we, we got the Mogwai, the little cute thing. Gracia came in, thought everything was in back in hand. I thought you were going to talk about the blender where they put the, um, <laughs> put the gremlin in and turn it on. Well, we're not, we're not far off that, <laughs> let, let me tell you. And then suddenly, in the last week or two, someone's got them wet or fed them after midnight, whatever it is you're not supposed to do with yeah. gremlins, and it's gone apeshit. Yeah, from minute 45 against Crystal Palace onwards. And that that's what that's the sort of um, poison he's got to draw, isn't it, before they go to Fulham. is somehow got to wipe that away. And again, reset everybody. Let's find reasons why we can beat Fulham then. Come on. Okay. There's been enough doom and gloom this week. I'm looking at the table. Fulham are almost certainly going to finish in that window that Radrazani um, leads as a target, about 10th to 14th. Yes. Given the points gaps above them and below them. So you could argue that prior to their most recent win, they had four losses on the bounce and a draw before that. Are they partially on the beach? They're missing Mitrovic. Dan James can't play. Can I kill you with stats again or bore you with stats again? Everybody has said right the way through the season that looking at Fulham's data, it was highly unlikely that the form was going to continue in the way that it was when it had them kind of knocking on the door of, of the top six. It was always going to probably regress to this point. And, and where are they now? They're in 10th, still clear of Chelsea, but um, you know, might in the end finish, finish below Chelsea. And you're right, they have been out of form recently. They don't have Mitrovic. It wasn't as if toe-to-toe Leeds didn't give them problems at Craven Cottage and okay there were changes for um, that FA Cup tie but you know they, they are beatable and, and it is winnable they are the lowest scoring team in the top half there's a stat for you yeah um, and so everybody was doing the XG differential which was showing that Fulham were winning games they shouldn't really have been winning if you wanted to base it on XG however football is played on the pitch um, and on the grass and on the grass they were doing pretty well but it probably is going to end up for them where it was kind of always likely to end up. So while Brighton are very, very much sticking it out to qualify for Europe, Fulham have dropped back and, and won't won't make it to that that point. But they've been very, very switched on under Marco Silva this season. I think in a few respects, people were wondering if having been so good in the Championship, Silva would take them into the Premier League and find that it just didn't work and it all fell apart. And having been so good in the Championship again, Mitrovic would go into the Premier League and find that he he couldn't score goals. But speaking to Peter Rutzler, a um, writer at the Athletic who's covered Fulham, he says that you know they've been set up differently this season. They've put, or at least they've they've been built differently to make the most of Mitrovic this season in in a way that they haven't previously when and he's been in the Premier League and he has scored a lot of goals. But he won't be in the mix on Saturday, so he's not somebody they'll have that Leeds will have to worry about. Who is going to be up front for them? Um, well, this is the interesting thing you see. Against well, well it was not, uh, it's not hot shot number nine, Dan James. Well, it isn't. And he was up front for them um, against Everton uh, in the, the previous game. They had, uh, Vinicius came on for them, um, replaced James late on. So we'll see what they do. But yeah, James was ineligible for the FA Cup tie, obviously on loan from Leeds. So not going to be involved. And that's, you know, that has been a, it has been a big handicap for them because Mitrovic at nine, any time he was fit, was just the easiest pick in the world, wasn't he? I just want Leeds United to, to win now. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like a very obvious thing to yeah. say. Just uh, win. This um this season has been far too stressful again, and we have got to the point now where it just needs to be over. It's another one that just needs to die. And we can start to put it to bed. We can start to kill it off by going there and winning. And I'm of the opinion now, it might be blind hope, it might be delusion, whatever it is, just never underestimate this football team's capacity to surprise you. That's what I'm clinging on to. I was looking at the comparison between this season and last season before the Liverpool game and it turns out that Leeds are a point worse off now after 31 games um, than they were a year ago, which 
is amazing really to, to realise that they've got themselves into this position again and, and is concerning. And I think you talk to me quite often about the kind of anarchy and mayhem that, that is in Leeds and was definitely in Leeds last season. Feels a little bit like it's gone out of them somewhat. Yeah, but we, we thought, though, Phil, a couple of weeks ago, we thought Leeds were veering towards being normal. So it yes. goes to show that our judgment cannot be trusted. True, true. So let's reconvene on Monday and hope for the best. Um, yeah, It has reached that point now, hasn't it, where you can make arguments for winning, losing every game. You just need to see what happens. I would like to see Nonto come in for Aronson. Mm. That's my one request for this. Yeah, it's been a really hard first year for Aronson. And I think there'll be a lesson for him at the end of it about the physicality of it, with, without a doubt. That, that does seem to have found him out. And you remember Jack Harrison going back to, uh, the, I, think, I think the end of his first season at Leeds when he was alone from Manchester City, he went to the States and he did a, like an individual private training camp, so to speak, got himself a fitness instructor. He's not somebody who struggled physically with it at all and I think realised that he, he needed to build himself up. Funnily enough, I mean, he used to talk about when he went to New York City, and he had your mate Frank Lampard there with him. He talked about you know him being really raw and new to it all. Lampard obviously being at the end of his career and talking about sitting on the exercise bikes and looking at Lampard's thighs and saying to himself, they are massive. Like, you know, it's, that is the sort of physique and um, physical structure that professional footballers need at, at that sort of level. He still has um, entitlement in his thighs, I did hear. So. I, I don't think so. He certainly never mentioned that, no. <laughs> Although next time next time I see um, I see Harrison, I'll, I will check. But he, um, so he, you know, I think Harrison, Harrison realised pretty quickly that to play in the Championship, play in the Premier League, whatever else, there was a, a physical aspect to it as much as, um, as talent. And I, th- I don't think any of us are sitting saying that Aronson has coped particularly well physically with the Premier League. I mean, once you get north of about, what, 30, 35, God, it's easy to put weight on. So, isn't like nature cruel? I in, find in... it quite easy to put weight on at 17, <laughs> to be quite <laughs> honest, when I went away to university. Isn't, yeah. nature, isn't nature cruel that he's 22 and he just cannot bulk mm. out? <laughs> I mean, surely now he, he would sit next to Willie Nonto on an exercise bike and look at his thighs and go, how has he done that? Yeah, yeah. Nonto's, a, a, Nonto's pretty <laughs> exceptional in that sense. Then he just built for it um, from the from the world goal. Yeah, I mean, I, I went away from home when I was 17 and put on about three stone first year at university. So <laughs> it absolutely can be done. I've got a diet plan for that if he needs it. <laughs> I think he does. He needs a summer on the carbs, doesn't he? Carbs Out six protein. nights a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kebabs. Get it get it going. Yeah, it's it, as I say, that, that has to be the big lesson, doesn't it, at the end of it, that it's really easy to get bullied in this league as a team, really easy to get bullied in this league individually and if players get the sense that they can bully you then they absolutely will bully you and you know you've got two midfielders there in McKenney and Rocker who you wouldn't expect to be bullied but they are still relatively new to this league and still finding out about it and they, they were bullied a little bit on uh, on uh, whenever when, when did we play Liverpool it was Monday wasn't it it was like a lifetime ago yeah but I mean I I look at McKenney and I think if you're getting the best out of him you're probably playing him slightly further forward and you know, to return to an earlier discussion, I think in these circumstances you would you would love to have Tyler Adams back in that midfield, pair him up with Rocker, just get him doing what he does, which is massive slew of, of defensive work. Just on that, Phil, um, yes. did you see Thomas Frank's comments about how Leeds were deploying McKenney? I think he was doing something for Premier League Productions, um, and he was I don't know if he was like doing some sort of studio expert stuff. Uh, around the Liverpool game, but he suggested that Leeds were actually playing McKenny too far forward in this game when we had no sort of deeper midfield presence and you're playing against a team that can really, really hurt you on the counter-attack. Yeah, no, absolutely. They, 
the structure of the team as it was on Monday required uh, Rocker and McKenney to to occupy that kind of holding area, to, you know, to provide some attacking impetus as well, but to to keep the door shut there. I think ideally what you want with McKinney is is him playing further forward with two midfielders in behind him. The sort of structure actually that we saw away at Fulham in the FA Cup, which was, you know, him in a slightly more advanced position, so able to kind of walk the flanks a bit and, and get into the box. Someone like Adams, definitely not suited to that role. You know, he is much more of a disruptor, much more of a, a destroyer back there. But as I say, I, I will ask Grassi about this, but... What are we on now? Coming up for April 22nd, season finishes on May the 28th. You, you can't see Adams playing a huge part, if any. Any sign of Stuart Dallas or is that just a mirage that's not going to happen? Dallas wanted to play this season, but I think the fact that that was kind of his aim to play this season tells you that it was, you know, th- there was no more to it than that. It was a, a bad, bad injury for him. And I mean, he must be absolutely desperate to get back involved because you know what Dallas is like and you know what Dallas's personality is like. And I think he is probably a sort of character who would, would quite help with this. Not to mention if he was playing anywhere near as well as he did in that first season in the Premier League, he'd be a big, a big asset to the team as well. But on a personal level, maybe everybody needs to be fair to him and say, look, if it needs to be properly ready for a full pre-season and then crack on from there, then that's the best way for it. I know Leeds are in deep trouble, but that was a really horrible injury that he had. I think as well, sometimes we're guilty of seeing injuries in the way they appear on computer games where you get it. So it says out for nine months and then that nine months passes and they come back and that's it. There's no there's no variance in it. Whereas actually, in reality, there's a hell of a lot to repair, isn't there, in an injury like, like Dallas's? Yeah, there is. And because you're not playing much and because you're not able to train as much, your muscle mass drops and your body changes um, and... It's not as if the Premier League slows down or drops its pace to allow you to reacclimatize, especially at this time of the season, you know, when it's it's absolutely full on. So yeah, I I don't think I don't think anybody will be pinning too much to Dallas for the run in, put it that way. Just thinking about this it's been a lunchtime kickoff as well, a bit of an early start, particularly if you're watching in the United States. We could be in a really, really healthy position by the time the other games kick off on Saturday, couldn't we? Or we could be absolutely looking over our shoulders, terrified, full of existential dread. Yes. That's the game, isn't it? That is the game, Phil. Results make a difference, yes. What else have we got this weekend? Palace at home to Everton. Leicester against Wolves. That is big, big, big. I think Leicester will see that as... Leicester must be feeling like they're not far off last chance saloon. And Wolves on Saturday, Leeds on Tuesday. Got to be an opportunity in in their eyes. Forest away at Liverpool, so you would um, would cross your fingers for that. Yeah, we've... um, We've got to hope for the best, really, haven't we? <laughs> you sound very optimistic. Phil. <laughs> we will uh, we'll wrap the show up there. A reminder that you can find us over on the Square Ball podcast feed as we do the Phil Hay Monday Club. We moved it to Tuesday this last week because we played on Monday night, but we will uh, we'll squeeze that one in between the Fulham game and the Leicester game. Monday morning, yes. I'll see you Monday then. morning, yeah. And we, what we do there is we just do it in 15 minutes, so it's a nice little bite-sized analysis of the uh, of the weekend's game. For sure. And I'm sure there'll be far more than 15 minutes worth of stuff to talk about, as there always is with Leeds Somebody United. was complaining, actually, that we went over this uh, this week on Tuesday. Why? Um, because it's supposed to be 15 minutes. Yeah, we, we did about 15 minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah. The 15 minutes and 30 seconds show. <laughs> Sharpen up your act, that's all I'm saying, Phil. <laughs> all right. Otherwise, I've, you won't last on this film. I've got show. it. I've got it. Um, Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod if you want to sign up, by the way, for The Athletic. And uh, interact with Phil on there before and after the games at the Phil Hay Show on Twitter. Monday, we will reconvene over on the Phil Hay Monday Club on the Square Ball feed. We'll see you soon. The Phil Hay Show.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.